Good afternoon. It's just gone six minutes past 12. My name is TD Madia, standing in for Mandy Wiener on the Midday Report. I'll be with you throughout this festive season. We are chasing tons of stories for you this afternoon. As you've heard in the Eyewitness News Bulletin, a commission, uh, the commissioner rather, in that commission of inquiry into the Usindis of fire has been recused. We'll get more of that from Eyewitness News reporter Alpha Ramushwana later. Several homes in Simonstown, in the Simonstown area, have been evacuated. We're also speaking to the CRL, it's threatened to take a firm stand amid 28 initiate deaths every year, every season we have this issue with the initiates so we'll look at that a little bit and of course we'll go to the Alexandra Magistrates Court for an update on the Kirsten Clates matter where a 21 year old student is on the stand applying um, for a bail application and we'll speak to former statistician general Dr. Padi Luhutla who says postpone the 2024 general elections says that there are other things we need to deal with first before we go to the polls that and much more this afternoon walking this talk together every hour every day this is 702 let's walk the talk as I said, we st- as I said, we start with the commission of inquiry into the fire that took the lives of seventy seven people in August last year. Um, Judge Justice Sisi Khampepe, who's the commissioner, who's the chair of the commission, is due to deliver judgment. Has delivered judgment rather on the application for the recusal of one of its commissioners. That's Advocate Tulani Makubela. Makubela was appointed by Premier Panyaza Lisufi to assist the retired justice. But Socioeconomic Rights Institute Seri brought an application accusing Makubela of making xenophobic remarks on the X media platform, uh, social media platform. They also accuse him of being linked to and being pro the Dudula movement. Remember that group was a vigilante group that's now turned into a political party that is now set to contest in next year's elections. I want you to first listen to Justice Kampepe's um, judgment earlier today. Commissioner Makubela's support for an association with Operation Dudula creates a reasonable apprehension that he might be biased. They argue that apprehension is that of a reasonable person in the position of the persons affected. In the premises, I rule that Commissioner Makubela is recused as a commissioner of the commission. Thank you so much. That's just that's Justice Sisi Khampepe. We cross now to Alpha Ramushwana from EWN, who's been following that story for some time now. Alpha, it is clear now, Advocate Makubele has been dismissed from this particular commission. What else did Justice Khampepe have to say? Good afternoon, Sidi. I think it's, uh, you know, firstly important to state and note the context behind this. Uh, a number of uh, the prospective uh, witnesses of this inquiry are foreign nationals. As we do know that about 32 foreign nationals who are also undocumented in the country have been detained at the Lindala Repatriation uh, uh, Center in Krugerstorp. And Justice Sisi Hampepe in her judgment today has mentioned that uh, there's a, a number of foreign nationals who are going to come before the commission to give their witnesses and to give their evidence. Uh, and with uh, Mr. Makubela being the man that he is, she doubts that he is going to be totally uh, impartial and uh, 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 won't be biased uh, against uh, the the people who are detained at the Lindala Repatriation Center. She argues that it's going to be unfair for uh, those uh, foreign nationals to be subjected to a commissioner uh, of his nature who has been 
posting a number of uh, xenophobic comments on his social media platforms. She's also said that uh, Mr. Makubela uh, uh, is basically unfit to be a presiding officer in this uh, commission of inquiry looking into the Marshalltown fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, this was something that was argued by Seri uh, when they launched this application about two weeks ago. So basically, we did hear that uh, the man is not fit to be a presiding officer or a presiding commissioner in this inquiry. Mm. Alpha, what ought to happen next? Though, if I understood correctly, Makubela was a representative of government, representing local government. Now he's taken away because of the concerns around credibility, which Justice Kampepe has said are quite accurate. What happens next in order for this matter to continue? Because if I understood correctly, this particular panel had a fair balance of different representatives from different institutions. So he was the face of local government. Who replaces him? What is the conversation around that? Do we know? Or is it too early to know? Well, she did say that there is uh, a candidate who's been approached to uh, come and replace uh, advocate uh, Tulani Makubela. However, uh, the person hasn't been named yet. We are expected, of course, to know the name later today. Uh, but the name of who will be representing uh, or replacing him, rather, uh, will be um, uh, made public a little bit later today. Mm. Uh, at, at the moment, uh, there's just two commissioners. Of course, it's uh, 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 apart from him who has now been uh, recused uh, from uh, the Commission of Inquiry looking into the Marshalltown fire. And in terms of reaction, this is an important win for Seri, but also for the residents. As you said, some of them were at the repatriation center. Some of them are not necessarily from here. They are African migrants. They're not from this country. What has been the reaction to this particular win um, for them? This is actually, uh, you know, uh, a, a victory for some of the undocumented migrants and residents of the Usindiso building. And of course, these are sentiments that were expressed uh, this afternoon by a number of the representatives of those residents. We spoke to a lawyer um, who um, asked us not to name her, actually. Uh, she's from the Norton Rose Fulbright um, um, Law Firm. She's representing the undocumented migrants who are uh, uh, being detained at the Lindala Repatriation Center. And she's saying that uh, those people have also expressed before that uh, Mr. Makubela was not going to favor them in any way in this commission. Uh, they were also scared going into uh, that commission that Mr. Makubela was going to ensure that their lives are ruined or they are painted black. Uh, you know, as we've seen his some of his tweets. And uh, he's, he's, Mr. Mokwela basically supported a number of operations, Dula, um, uh, uh, operations. And last week, actually, we heard that Operation Dudula was one of the groups that came and danced and rejoiced outside the Usindiso building on the night of the fire. So you can already tell what's going on in some of these residents' minds right now, knowing that uh, the same person who is for this group um, is now also being here as a commissioner uh, into the commission of inquiry. So it is a victory for them. And uh, the lawyers here have expressed that uh, this is a victory for those people who are detained at the Lindala Repatriation Center. I don't know if you've seen Makubela, and I might have missed it. Um, did you manage to speak to him at all? No, actually, we, I, I actually spoke to one of the lawyers today um, on the, uh, following the judgment, and they've told me that Makubela made a call to the secretariat of this commission earlier this morning um, that he will not be making his way to the commission. It seems like he knew his fate before he came here. So he, he, well, he didn't pitch, uh, but it seems like he knew his fate because he made a call in the morning saying he's not going to be there, may he be excused. So we are unable to get comments from Mr. Makubela today.
All right, thank you so much. That's EWN reporter Alpha Ramuswana was following that Usindiso fire. Remember that one in Marshalltown where over 70, well, 77 people perished in that fire. A commission of inquiry is said to take place. And there was this particular issue around this one commissioner who's now been recused because, as Justice Sisi Pepe found, that there are concerns over xenophobic remarks that he's made and links that have been made between himself and the Dudula movement. Your voice. Your station. Let's walk the talk. 702. 702. Year in, year out, we find ourselves speaking about the deaths of initiates. Why is it that this is what continuously happens when this important rite of passage takes place. The Cultural, Religious and Linguistic Communities Commission has now threatened to take steps to end the death of initiates in the Eastern Cape. This is a hard one because, as I said, every season you hear of countless deaths of initiates. So far, 28 have died since the start of the season this year. And it's not just a question of something going wrong as far as cultural rights are concerned. Three of them were shot in Ngamakwe and in Kebeha. We are joined now by Professor David Mosoma, who's the chairperson of the CRL, to try and understand exactly what is going on and what the CRL is hoping it can do in order to try and intervene in this particular crisis. Doc, Professor, thank you so much for your time. Welcome to the show. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, madam. Um, let me just uh, say from the very beginning, I think uh, you have called me earlier. Now you, you have double-booked me because the other media is calling me, and then you've just come in. I thought you were the, the media that uh, we agreed for 12.15. And yours was earlier. Unfortunately, you didn't. Because uh, 11.20, 11.25? I wouldn't have done that because the show starts at 12, Professor, but thank you so much. I think there must have been a misunderstanding. I'll deal with that. Um, the show starts at 12, so it would have ideally been 12.15, which is what? It is now. I'm sorry about the misunderstanding. Can we continue with the conversation? Okay. Okay. Thank you for your time. So, Professor, year in, year out, we find ourselves here, as I was saying earlier. Um, why do you think, though, that in 2023, we are still talking about young boys dying at initiation schools when initiation season hits? I think uh, in the statement we have issued, uh, we have uh, pointed out where the challenge lies. Essentially, the challenge lies in the crisis of uh, accountability and responsibility. It's not a crisis of culture, as many may have uh, thought. Culture is okay. Mm. But persons who actually are given responsibility to take care of the cultural sacred uh, practice of initiation are dropping the ball. Other than the problem of uh, criminality, where individuals um, crop up in the initiation school and shoot uh, young people, it's a different ball game because that is a criminal act by mm. on its own. But a situation of convening a school, young people coming in there and dying in that legal school itself, a betrayal of the culture, which uh, aims at initiating um, the right of passage for young people to become men and responsible men for the community. And no parent would ever contemplate of sending his son or her son to go and die. Mm. And they send their children to these schools because they believe in culture. Two, they believe that their sons will come back alive. And this, I think, 
where leaders must take full accountability for this. Other than the illegal schools, which we know by law are not permitted, and the law enforcement agency must take full charge in making sure no illegal school exists. Professor, because that mm. is, yeah. Before we speak about the interventions that you're putting on the table, because I know you said you're tired of talking, I want to go back slightly. In 2017, there was a report that was produced by the CRL, and in it, you spoke about the challenges that led to death and injuries during these particular periods. Um, one of the issues that was flagged, and I think you speak a little bit about that when you speak about accountability and what your expectations are, was the fact that these schools had become commercialized. Um, are you finding, and, and this spoke to recruit, recruitment processes, are you finding though that the issues that have been raised in the past by the CRL have at least been attended to somewhat? Have there been some issues that you've seen some impetus from government, parents, traditional leaders attempting to deal with those particular issues? You see, um, the, the issues we raised, the provincial government has set, come up with strategies to mitigate against those. I think there are teams that are responsible for this. But despite the strategies, I think in my um, in our release statement have indicated that strategy has not moved a, a middle to a zero death. Each time there's a season mm. of initiation, young people die. Not not two, not three. They die in, in big alarming numbers. numbers. It is quite scary. Yes, yes. twenty-eight so, so far. So, so far, I mean, of course, until it is verified, it could be less, it could be more, but until it is verified. But the issue here, it's about a situation where you use culture, a very important component of people's lives, as an instrument that takes away the very life people, who must be the breadwinners, some of them, the future leaders, the future accountants, the future lawyers of the nation. You know? And that itself must be something that when you are a parent um, and when you are a leader with a sensibility, with empathy, cannot countenance at all. And Professor, just before I let you go, let's go back to the issue of interventions. I do know you said you're tired of talking. As we wrap up, let's speak about what the CRL thinks is possible at this stage to try and remedy at least for now the season. What we thought, we, we met with the um, leaders stakeholders uh, early in the year. We came up with um, very far-reaching resolutions about what needs to be done. And it is the uh, implementation of those strategies. More than that, it is the compliance with the Customary um, Act of 2021. These two important uh, pieces of of work are, are critical to changing that because all the prescriptions are they about what needs to be done. For example, kids cannot go to uh, initiation school before they are vetted, they appear before a doctor, doctor certifying them that the, their state of health is okay. No child will be accepted if the child has got the conditions. And a number of pre- uh, um, preventative things have been put in place. So when a child passes on in that school, the indictment, is on those who must take accountability for the care of these young men in that, in that school. 
All right. Thank you so much. That's Professor David Masoma from the CRL speaking about this current initiation season. The CRL Commission is quite concerned about the rate of deaths that we are seeing. He says not yet verified, but we've heard 28 so far. And I, again, I go back to 2017 where there was a report that they produced. They sat down for days on end. I don't know if anyone remembers those hearings to try and figure out what is going on and why is it every time initiation season comes in, we have tons and tons of young lives that are taken. So there was an attempt to dig in and he's saying that, you know, they gave wide reaching um, uh, report on what ought to be done and we haven't really moved the needle. I think at the time um, Togo Mkwanazi Kaluva was the commission chair and she then said the secrecy element of the process is lost when a mortuary van and the police are involved. Culture collapses and becomes a crime because there's no secret when you have to tell the investigating officer the whole story that led to the death because the part big part of this is the secret secrecy element of it all as well. What are your thoughts about that? Um, the, the issue of initiations and whether or not they should evolve. I think it's an old question. It's an old conversation about what ought to be done about these these sacred rites of passage. But when you have 28 young people dead already at the start of initiation season, what ought to be done? And it's not a unique thing. It's not just this year. It's not just this season. It is a continuous story that we've been stuck on. In fact, I think people have moved on. They've become uh, desensitized to this particular issue that is happening. So, yes, your thoughts, please. We can send us a voice note or WhatsApp 072-702-1702-072-567-1567. Let's take a quick break. Your voice. Your station. Let's walk the talk. 702. 702. You are listening to the Midday Report. It's 26 minutes past 12. We take you now to the Alexandra Magistrates Court where the bail application of the man believed to be behind the rape and murder of a Joburg teacher, Kirsten Clates, is continuing. This is the fourth day that it's taking place, uh, I think with him on the stand, at the Alex Regional Court, as I said. We are joined now by Eyewitness News reporter Benedict Wicks. We are expecting, I think today, Benedict, to hear from both the Mm -hmm. state and defense as they wrap up their arguments. Good afternoon and welcome. Good afternoon. Absolutely, that is what we're expecting today. As you mentioned, the accused did take the stand in these bail proceedings. Um, He started his evidence last week, Wednesday, and then he was on the stand uh, yesterday and the day before and late yesterday afternoon, wrapped up his um, testimony on the stand. This morning we have heard from the state. They presented their case. Um, They have presented their case on affidavits. So it was two affidavits that were read into the record, Mm -hmm. one from um, the general manager of a private security company that was assisting with these investigations, just detailing uh, the CCTV footage they have basically placing him at the scene of the crime. Um, And then the other from the investigating officer sort of corroborating that and then also providing a little bit Mm. more detail into the case against the accused. Mm. Oh, I didn't realize I've been I've been attempting to catch up on because it really is like a a movie that's unfolding there. I've been trying to catch up. I didn't realize that he's not back on the stand uh, this morning. So he's done already. So yesterday we had some details from the autopsy, the 11 page autopsy. We understood Mm. that it was a blunt force trauma that caused the death, but they couldn't necessarily rule out strangling or smothering. We heard a little Mm. bit about the external injury that she suffered, um, as, uh, the external injuries around her genitalia, but not the mm-hmm. internal aspect of those particular injuries mm-hmm. as well, Benedette. But I think you spoke today about the issue of time. I think yesterday there was something about the visuals, the footage that they had. But I think today, though, they've been able to paint even a, a, an even more in-depth picture, a chronological order of a chronological order of events based on the footage that they have from the state's perspective. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? 
Absolutely. So, and and it's quite jarring if um, if the state's contentions proved to be proved to be an accurate representation of what actually happened. She they have a photograph of Kirsten Clates at the start line just after eight o'clock that morning. The event organisers took this photograph of her. She's smiling. She looks very happy. Um, Fifteen minutes later, another participant found her phone on the route at around quarter past eight. So looking at this and looking at the time, obviously, that it would have taken her to get to certain points and whatnot, the state has established that she would have been attacked and killed in a time period of just eight minutes that this whole attack would have unfolded in. And they've established that it would have been an eight-minute window somewhere between just after eight o'clock and about quarter past eight. And in terms of his defense, what have they had to say? So their their argument at this stage, and it is just bail. So at this point, you know, we have heard a lot of detail about um, his version of events and the state's version of events. But really, we need to keep coming back to the fact that this is just bail. The court, as it stands at the moment, this court is not tasked with determining whether or not he is guilty of the crimes that he's been um, charged of. But the, his his approach to these bail proceedings, his counsel's approach, has been that, that they maintain the state has a very weak case against them. Basically, they say while they have CCTV footage that places them at the scene of the crime and even wearing her shirt and carrying her clothing, they say at best, essentially, all this would amount to is a charge of theft and a charge of defeating the administration of justice. The defense maintains they don't actually have any evidence tying him to the charges of rape, murder and aggravated robbery that they've charged him with. So that's really what they're going for in these proceedings. They want to prove that the state's case is weak and they want to use that as an exceptional circumstance which would warrant his release on bail in the interest of justice. And just very quickly, in terms of the Mm -hmm. judgment on the bail application itself, do you know when that will take place? Um, Is it a a week-long wait, a few days? What are your expectations? Um, So we're not sure at this point. There is a possibility that the court could deliver judgment after um, closing arguments wrap up today. Of course, we'll still need to hear from the state after the defense wraps up um, its closing arguments. So like I said, there is a possibility that judgment will be handed down today. Um, The the magistrate hearing the bail application is known for being very speedy and very efficient. Um, Alternatively, they could potentially postpone it to another date for judgment. Obviously, it has been quite a long application. So my gut instinct would be that she would probably want um, a couple of days or a little bit of time just to go through the evidence that was led and to come up with a judgment. But we'll have to wait and see what, what she decides once they wrap up closing arguments. All right, thank you so much. That's EWN's Benedict Wicks coming to us there from the Alexandra Regional Court where that matter around the Jobic teacher, Kirsten Clates, is still underway. As you said, it's purely still a bail application. It's not even the case yet. Because this journey is better taken together. Let's walk the talk. 702. Hi, Judy. Nice show. I like the way that you hang with the professor there. Regarding that phone call and yeah, yeah, that was so professional. Thank you. Bye. Hi, it's Lee. You know, the, the thing that are happening in South Africa, I don't understand what's going on. The guy is, he is he, being removed for supporting Dudula. Dudula is saying no to the people who are in the country illegally. No country in the world can accept people to come just like they do in South Africa without documentation. And it seems like it's not a crime to be in South Africa illegally because those people, they get lawyers, they do whatever they want in our country illegally. That is nonsense. Uh, hi, TD. On the issue of initiates, it's one of those things that happens every year, every two seasons of each year. But the professor mentioned that 
we are killing uh, future doctors and lawyers, but what are the real demographics? I mean, socioeconomic uh, demographics of those people who are getting killed, who are losing their lives. As across our parents who live in suburbs and are educated, are they still sending their children there or are they expecting their boys to prove their maturity by getting jobs and qualifications? Thank you so much for your voice notes. That last one, first of all, the first one, thank you so much. And the last one, um, that's an interesting question. But I do think living in Joburg, I still see that trend very much so where at particular points, so-called young professionals with children are very much interested in participating in that rite of passage, but seeing a more detailed picture of the socioeconomic conditions around our initiatives, I think would be definitely interesting. More voice notes, you can send them to 072-702-1702-072-567-1567. Walking this talk together. Every hour. Every day. This is 702. Let's walk the talk. Turning our attention to the Western Cape now. In Simonstown, felt fires kept more than 300 firefighters busy. I understand at least three choppers were also part of this mission as heavy winds exacerbated the situation. Let's get an update from spokesperson of the Cape Town Fire and Rescue Services. Their spokesperson, Jermaine Carrelser, joins me now on the line. Jermaine, thank you so much for your time. Good afternoon. I'm a little bit confused. I must start by saying that. I'm a little bit confused. I first thought that there was no need to evacuate residents then overnight i heard that they needed to now evacuate uh, residents the situation had changed can you give me an update on whether or not that is still the case if residents need to evacuate their homes all right good afternoon and thank you for having me on your show yes the precautionary evacuation was activated at around one o'clock this morning that was the result of the wind picking up considerably and that was only for residents in Harbour Heights. Um, I think there was 30 to 40 um, of those uh, residents that was um, precautionally evacuated. But I think they're back at the um, uh, homes now currently. And in terms of how intense the fire got or how much more of a fire you still have to battle, um, has that been put out? Do you still need to put more efforts? Are there still some concerns? I know you said that they're back in their homes. Yeah, I don't think there's so much um, of a concern than yesterday. The wind is actually playing in our favor today. It died down considerably. And I think it's favorable um, firefighting conditions for us. Um, currently, there are five choppers in the air water bombing those inaccessible areas. And with the crews that we currently have on scene, I think it's considerably less than the 300 of yesterday. I think it's about half, about 150. That's including all the other old plays with city, um, Table Mountain National Parks, NCC, Volunteer Wildfire Service, and working on fire. Um, and I think if we, if the wind plays in our favor, um, I think we can have a, a good day and, uh, and make some big inroads into this um, fire. Right. And then just lastly, I heard that there were some injuries among some of the firefighters. How many were injured? Is that the case? How many were hospitalized? Have they made it back home? What is the update around that? Yeah, from five firefighters I'm sustaining this during the course of the evening. You understand it's dark and the ground is uneven. So two were hospitalized and three of them just soldiered, soldiered on. And I think um, we're getting an update in about an hour's time about the two that was taken to hospital. All right, thank you so much. That's Jermaine Carlson, who's the spokesperson of the Cape Town Fire and Rescue Services, speaking about that fire in Simonstown, saying that, yes, at 1 o'clock, they had to activate um, the call for residents to evacuate their homes. However, they are back home then.
Your voice. Your station. Let's walk the talk. 702. 702. Turn, keep staying on, along the coastlands, we now turn our attention to KwaZulu-Natal, where disaster teams were responding, had responded swiftly this week to thunderstorms that claimed the life of one person and left several others injured. We joined now by EWN reporter from KZN, Tlantla Mabaso. Tlantla, good afternoon and welcome to the show. Um, as I understand it, what it was today was a report, initial report from the disaster management, a preliminary report on storms that took place earlier this week. Is that correct? Indeed, Sidi. The storms that uh, took place on Monday night, did report on that, that there was a level two. I'm losing you slightly in Santa. Please say that again. Yesterday, indeed. Do you have me now? Loud and clear. You can continue. Yesterday, I'm saying yes, indeed. Eyewitness News did report on Monday that the South African Weather Services had issued a level two warning that parts of KwaZulu-Natal will experience a level two thunderstorm and heavy rains in the province. And that did indeed take place on Monday night. So yesterday we received those reports that areas like Dandy and Downhouser were badly affected. But for now, all we do know is that um, there's still an outstanding report that includes the province of capital, Umkungulungu, where disaster management teams are currently on the ground assessing what damage happened in those areas. But we do know that with Downhouser and Dandy, they're looking at assessments that indicate that 173 households were damaged. This is now really affecting 1,211 people who are now housed at community shelters because their house is badly damaged. But I must mention Sidi, that livestock was also not spared in this regard. I saw images that I think you posted in our, in our group at Eyewitness News of some of the mm. damage. I don't know if you've managed to hear from any of the residents um, just about what yet another storm that is this, um, this severe costs, the personal cost to residents in the area. Indeed, Siri. What I can tell you is that community members are just really appealing for immediate intervention. This includes city food, blankets, and essentials. But a lot of them, city will now uh, be spending Christmas at uh, the community shelters uh, than spending it at their homes. But what I think has been concerning to several communities in the province is that uh, it, it, it's expected that December will be like this going throughout. You'd recall, city just last month, Eyewitness News was at... Um, Umkanyaguti district, where over a, a, a thousand homes were destroyed, 54 schools destroyed, and this took a toll on matriculants that were writing. But see, the on the ground, really, from community members, really, is that they are appealing for immediate intervention. The provincial mm. government has bowed to us, but we do know for a fact see, that uh, in many instances, it's been nothing but those promises. But on the, other, on the flip side, disaster management also seems to be frustrated with residents who don't seemingly listen to the warnings fast enough. Indeed. That when warnings are put out and ask residents to move to higher ground, that doesn't necessarily get done. Um, mm. Speak to me a little bit about that. Well, indeed, it is that issue of when disaster management teams, of course, call out on communities to you know, uh, exercise precautionary measures. And, of course, those in low-lying uh, areas and in areas prone to disasters, when they are warned, to move to areas where they could quickly get to safety. This doesn't actually happen, although the alerts do mention that the following municipalities and areas stand at risk. Community members still stay in their homes, but when you speak to community members, they say they least expect that they will be you know, affected by these disasters, and then it goes with them experiencing it. And now this is the issue that we're facing, that a lot of those, including the, someone that was struck by lightning, those are people, CD, 
who did not adhere to those precautionary measures. But also, with natural disasters, one may not know how to really exercise those. But also, it's rural areas where maybe the provincial government itself will need, as time goes, to take such you know, programs, educational programs to teach and educate people about such disasters. Mm, all right, thank you so much. That's EWN Kezeren reporter Ntlantlamaba. So speaking about the inclement weather and the damage it's caused in that particular area, and it's a, it's a twofold thing where on the one hand, you've got people who are not necessarily healing government's cause, but on the other hand, government must maybe finesse, maybe finesse is not the right word, but must maybe come up with a better strategy. Yeah, maybe put it that way. Strategize differently about how they communicate with their rural communities about moving and about managing um, this weather that's been happening. I mean, KZN has suffered quite a lot, a lot of damage, um, a lot of lives lost through these kind of storms that we've been seeing over recent years. Because this journey is better taken together. Let's walk the talk. 702. In the Free State, the Premier there, Mkolisi Dukwana, led a march against femicide and gender-based violence in Bloemfontein since the start of this month. I don't know if you're paying attention to that, but if you're on social media, so on X, you'll start seeing posters, and you've, I've been seeing quite a few about young women going missing, particularly in the Free State area, particularly around Mangawung. If I understand correctly, two were found dead across different parts of the province, two remain missing so there is something happening there i mean there's something constantly happening when it comes to gender-based violence across our country it is worrying i don't know where we'll reach a point where the efforts are sufficient but it is something that's been ongoing i'm joined now by ewn reporter gloria mutuere who's following that story gloria good afternoon she's in studio with me thank you so much for joining me like i said i've seen some of the posters i've seen concerns around missing young women and i think this is the reason that prompted to do to lead this march good afternoon cd definitely in the last since the beginning of december there's been quite a significant number of posters that are coming out where people are saying people are going missing in bloemfontein like especially young women and this this has been a thing and even the conversation around x when it comes to that is that this is a thing in bloemfontein like a young woman just go missing in the area what has he said? The core of his message, I understand that he has spoken? Yes, he has already spoken. He was basically saying that a lot of the times, these incidents, when they happen, people that are close to the victims are actually involved. So he's calling for people in society to basically root out these people. If you know what is happening, if you are aware of a situation that's happening, then say something. Reach out to the police. Try and say something. They've already established a task team to look into what is happening right now. And one of the things that he was saying was that women should try and make sure that they're safe. Avoid things like hitchhiking because that's also one of the things that actually put a lot of young women in danger. I always hate that it's the women who are told you ought to do A, B, C, D, E to avoid putting your life at risk because of somebody else's actions. But that's a conversation for a different day, I suppose. You said to me earlier that there was quite an interesting turnout. Did you manage to hear from other people what their messages were? I imagine they're quite similar to the Premier himself. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to talk to other people right now, Tidi, but there was a big big turnout there was hundreds of people that joined the march different organizations different um groups civil society groups there was a lot of people that were there a lot of government um 
employees joined the march. Actually, the Department of Health in the Free State was part of the people that were marching today as well. All right, thank you so much. That's Gloria Maturi from EWN speaking about that march that took place in the Free State where Mkolisi Dukwana is making a call, taking a stand against gender-based violence. Let's take a quick break and we'll come back. Walking this talk together. Every hour. Every day. This is 702. Let's walk the talk. Hey, good afternoon, Siri. I hope I'm not jinxing it, you know. Uh, I'm now gone four days without load shedding. I hope it continues like this because it's supposed to be normal. But yeah, we now have to look out for statements from Megawatt Park. I hope none comes until I don't know when. Have a lovely day and thanks for a good show as always. Thank you so much. Can I tell you, I'm also scared. I'm so anxious about the electricity. I was actually looking at my device and I was like, have I charged everything up? Is everything ready and running in case it goes down? So I share your fears very much. I do know that Masiko Ratlach at ENCA often has no power and is often ranting and raving on Twitter, also on X. But yes, I share your sentiments. I'm crossing fingers that we get to Christmas and beyond with electricity. Thank you for your voice notes. Your voice. Your station. Let's walk the talk. 702. 702. Transport Minister Sindisiwe Chikunga is leading the festive season road safety awareness campaign. They are on the N3 Heidelberg Way Bridge at the moment. That's where you find Tabiso Goba, EWN reporter, who joins us now on the line. Tabiso, good afternoon and welcome to the show. Good afternoon, CD. So the department is already concerned, the minister, at least from my understanding, at this moment is already concerned about the fatalities as we speak. Has she spoken to you? What else is she saying about the festive season and road safety and the importance of road safety? Good afternoon, CD. Yes, uh, the minister is kindly speaking to the media as uh, as we're speaking now. Um, I I did manage to hear some of it. And, um, you know, as you said, there is this is a period uh, within our calendar where there's a high number of fatalities on our roads. And the minister, you know, saying that they're very much pretty much worried about that. That is why they they're having this inspection here. So what is basically happening here, CD, is a lot of trucks are being stopped and truck drivers are being um, tested for for a number of uh, of things where their vision um, for chronic illness and um, just a number of stuff to make sure that they are competent on the road and what they found is that a lot of drivers have a lot of chronic illnesses and a lot of them have not rested so for now for today TD the focus on uh, on this uh, inspection on the safer season is focused on truck drivers because we know that there's a lot of trucks on our roads and especially when trucks are involved in an accident there tends to be a lot of fatalities it was around about now this time in the, of the year when we had the terrible accident with a tanker in boxburg so there are concerns though about the guardians where traffic officers themselves are often found at the heart of corruption scandals of bribery allegations that are happening on the roads so that has become part of the conversation there at the Waybridge. Yes, and and I think this is, you know, to everyone listening, um, you know, it's something that all South Africans are very much familiar with about, you know, traffic drivers who take bribes and who obviously are not... Um, are not up to standard and this is something obviously the road management traffic corporation is something they're also very much aware of and um, i spoke to the ceo advocate makosini 
Msibi about the issue of corrupt traffic officers and what the RCMC is doing to curb that. And this is what he had to say, Didi. All right, thank you so much. That's EW. Oh, well, we are a fraternity, but within the fraternity, we are made up of a number of people with different intentions and different cultures. However, we are the first to admit that within our midst, there are those that are corrupt, that pursue um, practices that are contrary to the dictates of our behavior and our code of conduct. Just like next last week, we have just arrested eight of, we had an operation out in Newcastle, we have arrested eight of the traffic officers that uh, were involved into corruption. Over the weekend, we came over to Joburg and pursued such operations. We have opened seven dockets of the traffic officers that were corrupt, that we will be arresting them on Friday, simply because we wanted to arrest on Friday to keep them so, so as to appear before courts next week, Tuesday. So we're beginning to send a strong message that crime does not pay. And within ourselves, we're leading ourselves of the correct elements. All right. What you're hearing there is voice, the voice of advocate Makosinim Sibi, who's the CEO of the Traffic Management Corporation, was speaking on corrupt traffic officers. He was speaking to Tabiso Goba of EWN, who's on the N3 Way Bridge there by Heidelberg, where there's a safety inspection currently going on. Because this journey is better taken together. Let's walk the talk. 702. Next year's elections should be postponed. Now, this is a view that's been shared with the Daily Maverick by former statistician General Padi Luhotla. Dr. Padi Luhotla joins me now on the line. Dr. Padi Luhotla, thank you so much for joining me. The former statistician general, thank you so much for joining me. So, ideally, we should not be trying to get to the elections. You raised some concern in this interview about the way political parties are maneuvering and trying to put themselves ahead of society at this point in time. Well, perhaps uh, that society has allowed them for far too long to go ahead of them. That is a legitimate think, argument. Uh, mm. Yes, yeah, so we need to actually claim back what I call the horse. You see, there is a, a, a moral dilemma there, a moral hazard, when you have the horse and the jockey, and the jockey defining the horse, and then riding the horse whichever way. I think uh, the claim, society must claim back the horse construct that horse, and then go out and say, this is our horse. Any jockey who wants to ride it will ride it under the following conditions. Ndadal- and then on the basis of that, we can have any action. Ndadaluhuta, in practical terms, though, how society goes about claiming back its power, taking back its power so that the elections are then set in a, in a, in, under conditions that you imagine serve society better. How would we do that? How would it be feasible to claim back our power? Because I would argue, but how do you then participate in a democratic process if you're not willing to even vote as yet? No, no, it's not, it's not, it's not about uh, willing to vote. Willing to vote must be a willing to vote, but you must vote on a program that is well agreed upon. I think if you think about the days the RDP, when it was constructed and sold to society, it was made by society itself. The NDP, its construct, it was constructed by society itself. We have not had the time or the possibility of saying this, or rather at the moment we have that possibility of talking to issues that have not been satisfactory in the nation. If we proceed in the way we are, where we have a multiplicity of political parties, in the way we have seen the coalitions functioning in the municipalities, 
we are only going to see not a national agenda, but rather a a party political agenda that is far divorced from a national agenda. We need a reset now. You also say this is an insult to our founding president, Tata Nelson Madiba's legacy? Well, if you look at his house in Horton, which is seven kilometers from his statue in Santon, and that house is so filthy. It's uh, algae, it's overgrown grass and everything. And not a government, not a municipality, not the foundation, not anyone is taking offense at what that house looks like. It characterizes our understanding of what development is. That a stalwart of that nature with so much sacrifice came from a house he departed from and giving the last breath Mm. can be that way. Mm, That says a lot about ourselves. And we cannot go into an election with that kind of mindset that we have displayed at Madiba. You know, I've seen a lot of heritage sites also become, literally take the same form that you're describing. And those have often been in far-flung provinces and have been left completely alone. But as you speak, that house is down the road here in Alton that has been left in that condition with an ANC government co-governing the city of Johannesburg where this house sits. You spoke about the first 30 years of SA's democracy being the fat years. I'd like to go into it. However, I am running out of time. So I want to go back to the question I asked you earlier about the practical steps of enforcing a reset. The steps where society takes back its power from the politicians and dictates what ought to happen. I have a minute left to try and get the answer uh, that, from you. That, 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 that has started. Uh, for instance, the... Um the, the uh, interface uh, gathering that happened at, uh, uh, last month is one of the steps that actually define that moment. of, And you see it in all other spaces. It's almost like 1992, 93, where society was claiming their rights, taking over and claiming what belongs to them. That happened in the build-up to 1994. But something fast would have to happen to halt elections, which will happen between May and August in 2024. We would need something urgent, something jarring that brings us to a halt. I know the conversation that you're talking about, but if little bits of those conversations are happening, they're not happening nearly as fast or urgently as they ought to, no? Well, things precipitate in different ways. Uh, and uh, you can see that uh, coming, and uh, that can still happen before the election. And in fact, it should happen before the election. At least we need to postpone, All right, that's to reset, okay. to get uh, society engaged. All right, thank you so much. I wish we had more time so I can unpack a little bit of that. That's Dr. Padi Luhota, former statistician general, saying we don't need to go to the elections as yet. We need to press a reset. He speaks of a Codessa moment of talks of society taking back its power from the political parties, who he says are in it for themselves. He says we've had 15 fat years where these people are divvying up uh, power, resources in order to benefit themselves and not the citizens. He says it's also not too late for that reset. I'm not so sure. Elections are just around the corner, but only time will tell. Thank you for tuning in.